Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, good morning, good morning, afternoon or evening to all of my wonderful listeners listening to me live on iHeartRadio on the radio station itself, WAXE. I love all my friends in the cars. Be careful while you're driving and listening to me because a couple of you have said you got so into what I was talking about. You wanted to take notes. Well, if you're going to do that, please pull over onto the side of the road or know that you can catch us on the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or on itsallaboutthequestions.com. We don't want anybody hurt while you're listening to the show, okay? We love that you love what we're talking about, that it's, it's making an impact for you, but please be safe. And um, we have so much to cover today. I'm just going to jump right in. My my guest today is calling in from Canada, and I'm just excited that she's in a safe space right now because when you hear all about this woman, you'll know what I was talking about. Um, my guest today is Sally Armstrong. She is a human rights activist, journalist, and award-winning author. She's covered stories about women and girls in zones of conflict all over the world, from Bosnia and Somalia to the Middle East, Rwanda, Congo, and Afghanistan. Her eyewitness reports have earned her awards, including the Gold Award from the National Magazine Awards Foundation and the Author's Award from the Foundation for the Advancement of Canadian Letters. She received the Amnesty International Media Award in 2000, 2002, and again in 2011. She was a member of the International Women's Commission, which is a UN body that consists of, get this, 20 Palestinian women, 20 Israeli women, and 12 international women whose mandate is assisting with the path to peace in the Middle East. If I were to read you every honor and award that Sally has um, received, it, we'd be here all day just going through this. In, in March 2010, she became the fourth recipient of the Calgary Peace Prize. She has received eight honorary doctorate degrees, is a member of the Order of Canada. One of her books was Veiled Threat, The Hidden Power of the Women of Afghanistan, and her current book is Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. It is, I'm telling you, everybody, this is a book every human being on the planet needs to read. It is not an easy book to read, but it will shake up every perception you have on what you thought was really going on. And because of that, when I met Sally last year at the Impact 100 kickoff breakfast, we've just stayed in touch, and I am honored that we are friends and that I can share her with you. So, Sally, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, Laura, I'm delighted to be with you. You, you know, when we met at the dinner at Ocean Grill the night before you spoke, I knew I wanted to meet you because there was just something about the work you were doing that shook me up. And it shook me up in a good way because one of the things about this show, it's all about the questions and the work that I do is to get people to change their perceptions, to understand that what they believe may not be the reality. It is, it is a reality, but it may not be the reality. And you really show people reality. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying so. And um, I know that you started your day today putting snow tires on your car. <laughs> That time of year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're about 85 degrees here in Florida. Uh, and uh, I think you said your 
your high was going to be at 12 degrees Celsius. And if anybody out there can do the Celsius to Fahrenheit calculations, tweet it out to <laughs> at the Laura Stewart and let us know how how warm it's going to be in Canada. Um, but, but Sally, you know, I, I had an, a plan for what we were going to talk about today, but I'd like to just start out everything that's going on over in Europe right now. It, it fits so much in with where you spend most of your life working in the Middle East and all of these things, what do you think is really going on and and what can somebody do? And I know that's kind of a broad question, but mm-hmm. y- you've lived there so well, much. You know, it, what, it, what it reminds us again and again is the tremendous damage that can be done by a very few misguided people. What we're looking at is a collection of hooligans who have traded in humanity for hatred. That's what we're looking at. I mean, the people of Paris have suffered so much, but don't forget the people of Beirut also suffered a short time ago when I, when a, a ISIS bombed their city and, and so many people were killed. The people of Turkey, remember, they were walking in a freedom march and ISIS attacked them. So it's, it's, I mean, Paris is just heartbreaking, but so is Beirut. So is the, the march in Istanbul. These kinds of things are going on because, as I said, a collection of people have decided to trade in their humanity for hatred, and they have to be stopped. Now, you raise a good point, right? You talk about Turkey, you talk about Beirut, so many other um, countries that had horrific things happening from this same group of people. And it it hit the news cycle for a moment and then was gone. Paris is still in the news. We're flying in the U.S. flags at half-mast. We didn't do that for the people in Turkey or the other countries. Why do you think it is that a Paris, and this is not negating it, because it's just horrible to me wherever it happens. Why do you think it is, though, that we're not talking more about those other places? Well, I think it's very wise that we raise the issue. It is an issue that we paid more attention to Paris than we did to Beirut and to Turkey and heaven knows so many other places. Having said that, Laura, I think it it is something to remember that historically the United States and Canada and France have been partners for a very long time. I don't think we can negate the fact that we belong to NATO. And, and when countries, including the United States, including Canada, including France, including others, signed the NATO pact, the pact says, all for one, one for all. And, and the United States called the, I think it's Article 5 of NATO, after 9-11, and said, we have been attacked, we expect you to join us, and, and return fire to our enemy. And NATO did. Everybody in NATO went to Afghanistan. Uh, France has not called on Article 5 yet. My feeling is they, they might. But I, I think before we condemn ourselves for not paying enough attention to Beirut and, and to um, remember the attack of the students in, in Nairobi in Kenya by al-Shabaab from Somalia... They did make the news, and they, they were carried for a couple of days. But you're right, it is not the same extent as our response to Paris. But then, as I said, 
we have been partners with Paris for a very long time. So it's wise to bring up the fact that that um, there are other people to be concerned about, but but there is also history that uh, goes back. You know, I I look at Paris, and, and I've been to Paris, right? I've never been to Turkey. I've never been to Beirut. So for me, Paris really struck home. It was like, wow, that could have been us again. Or it, it could, you know, Turkey and Beirut seem a little more exotic to me. Well, I think, sadly, we, we tend to have an impression that those things happen to those people in those places. Yes. And I think you're very wise to have raised it because it's, it's an impression we need to change. Um, look at the way we're now reacting to the, the refugees, the Syrian refugees, which is my next story. I'm off to walk with, uh, with the refugees. I want, to, I want to profile three of the women. I want to know who they are, what they risked in order to take this long migration and, and how their children are managing. But all of a sudden, people don't want the Syrians. But you know, the last migration that was as big as this was when the, the Jews were running out of Russia, running away from the pogroms in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And they experienced the same thing. Nobody wanted them. People said awful things about them. People worried they were going to take over or change people's ways. One of them actually wound up in, in America. And, and one of the things he gave back to America was he wrote, God bless America, he's Irving Berlin. And he escaped as a little kid out of the pogroms in Russia. So I think, I think we need to step back and understand that these Syrians are running from the same people who attacked Paris. They're running from ISIS. They're running from the monsters who have bombed their homes, killed their parents, destroyed their villages and their cities. And now we're saying, well, one of you might be one of them, so you can't come here. That says to me that we don't trust the people who do our our checking on immigrants. And it's such a... It's such a huge check that people have to go through. So I think there's a little bit of um, shoot-from-the-hip reaction that, that we also need to check. I, I love the fact that you said we have to check our shoot-from-the-hip reaction. We're <laughs> going to go into a commercial break, and we're going to be back with more from um, human rights activist, journalist, and award-winning author Sally Armstrong. So we'll be right back. And I encourage you, as we go into this commercial break, to ask yourself, How are you responding or are you just reacting to what's going on in the news today? We are back with Sally Armstrong. Um, She wrote the book Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter, a book that I encourage everybody to get. And before the break, we were talking about sort of perceptions and and how we need to relook at, at the world and and Sally, I have a, a question for you that I don't really know the answer to at this point. How did you get your start doing what you're doing, and why do you do what you do, writing these stories that nobody else wants to report on? Well, actually, well, let me tell you a story. Um, I was the <clears throat> editor-in-chief of um, a, a very large magazine in Canada, and of course I needed to compete with the other uh, magazines. And at that time, I began to feel that when the all-news networks came into our living rooms, it changed what we know. 
You know, if you don't know about something, how are you expected to have an opinion or to react or to do something about it? <clears throat> Historically, I think it was 1959, there was a, a famine in China that I believe killed a million people. But there was no camera there. There was no reporting. All we heard about that famine in China was our mothers saying, eat your vegetables, children are starving in China. Is that where but that in, came from? I never knew that's, that. That's where that came from. So in Ethiopia in 1986, I think it was, um, there was a famine and a BBC camera got in. And what we discovered was that people don't die in a famine because there's not enough food. There's donated food. They die because the warlord in charge says, your village is getting the donated food, your village is not getting the donated food. I think that came as something of a shock to most people. And I felt that started to involve, well, not started, but it certainly involved women readers of magazines. And I did some research and found out that my readers were just as concerned as I was about things like ethnic cleansing and, and the oppression of women and what happens, how a woman stays safe in the middle of a war and, and how she manages to, to care for her children, etc. So I started doing those stories for my magazine, and the response was enormous. It was absolutely enormous. So we just kept on doing it. And years and years later, when I left the magazine, I kept on doing it. But I'll tell you one other piece to that. In 1992, I was in Sarajevo. I was doing a story on the effect of war on children. And the day before I was to leave, I began to hear rumors about rape camps. Now, Laura, this is before Darfur, before Rwanda, before Congo. And what journalists, as you know as well as I do, what journalists need to understand in a war zone is one of the first casualties of war is usually the truth. So I, when I heard they were rounding up the sisters and the wives and the daughters and the mothers of the enemy and putting them in camps and gang-raping them, I thought, surely this can't be true. But all day I got it from more and more credible sources. And at the end of the day, I knew there was something going on here. But I was working for a magazine. I could race this, this headline news story to press in about three months. So I gathered everything I could, mobile phone numbers, incidents, names, everything I could. I brought it back, and I gave it to a very large news agency. I said, give this to one of your reporters. This is one heck of a story. And I went back to my office, and I waited and waited and waited for the headline. Seven weeks later, there was a four-line blurb in Newsweek magazine that said they're gang-raping women in the Balkans. So I phoned the guy I gave the story to, or the news to, and I said, what happened? And he said, oh, you know, I got busy, you know, I was going to sign up, but you know, I was on deadline, and you know, I forgot. I said, 20,000 women were gang-raped, some of them eight years old, some of them 80 years old, and you forgot? He said, oh, Sally, don't be so hard on me. You're always blabbing about the women. So I went into an editorial meeting. I told my staff, and they said, Sally, don't you get it? Nobody wants a story because it's only about women. Wow. So two days later, I was on a plane. I went back. Um, I got the story. I'm ashamed of the number of awards I received for getting that story, but I also felt like Scarlett O'Hara. I thought, if nobody wants to tell these stories, they're going to be my stories. 
So the bottom line is this, Laura. I sort of feel like I won because today you can be sure I would be at the back of a very long line of daily news reporters who would be after this story. In Sarajevo at that time, BBC was there, CNN was there, The Guardian was there, The New York Times was there, everybody was there. But it was a woman's story. Today, a woman's story goes to the front page. That's the difference. And that's why I went into it, and I feel that um, I, I did what I felt I wanted to do, and I'm really proud of it. So why do you think it is that today... They're telling the women's stories. I mean, look at Malala, who you know. Well, exactly. But you know what? That is what my book is about. The earth has shifted under the status of women. I mean, look at um, the economist Jeffrey Sachs. He said the status of women in the economy are directly related. Where one's flourishing, so is the other. Where one's in the ditch, so is the other. Well, you and I have known that for a very long time. But when Jeffrey Sachs says it, it gets traction. And you mentioned Malala. You know what? Stories like Malala's story, and to, to help your readers in case they forget, she was a 15-year-old <clears throat> who lived in the Swat Valley in Pakistan and decided she wanted to go to school, and the Taliban forbid girls to go to school, and she went anyway, and the thuggish, stupid Taliban shot her in the head. Why? Because she wanted to learn to read and write so she could think for herself. In any case, that story goes on and on and on. Five years ago, we would never have heard it, because over there in the Swat Valley, they would have said, eh, it's a girl, who cares? And you and I, we would have whispered behind our hands and said, you know, the way they treat their women and girls is appalling, but there's nothing we can do about it. Malala's story went into the stratosphere, and now Malala has become the world's daughter. Everyone knows her. The kids are reading her book. You and I are talking about her. And this is because the earth has shifted. Now we're looking at things in a way we didn't look at them before. We're saying, for example, what do you mean the girls aren't allowed to go to school? Get those girls to school. They have to be able to think for themselves. It, it, it's so powerful, and I'm just trying to formulate the question <laughs> that, the, for what I, what I want to ask you. But, I mean, you say things have shifted, yet in some ways I feel that the shift is tenuous, that there's so much going against that shift becoming a permanent shift. And, and I well, don't know how to help my listeners take a step in to help make it less tenuous. Well, I, I wouldn't agree that the word is tenuous. We're not at the finish line, that's for sure. Okay. Women in America are not at the finish line, and women in Saudi Arabia are not at the finish line. But the, the, the change going on today, it's not stoppable. This kind of change, it picks up speed, and it's moving, actually, at lightning speed. You can't pick up the paper that something is not going on in the name of women. And whether it's putting more women on corporate boards, which that didn't happen before, and now every single study that's been done shows that the corporation makes more money if they have more women on the board. And there's no suggestion that women know more than men or are better than men or anything like that. The point is, women and men bring different points of view to the table, and together we're way better. So is it tenuous? We're moving. We're all moving in that direction. And I don't believe people will go backwards. You know, when the women's movement started, which was very much a Western women's movement, but it started 
I suppose, back to the 60s. Uh, but if you look now and someone says, oh, who cares about feminism? Well, you don't have to use words like that. And we've made so many gains, but are you really going to go back to to the, the ways that were not fair, that you couldn't open a bank account without your husband's signature, that you couldn't take your kids to the hospital for treatment without your husband's permission, that you said, I obey when you took your marriage vows. This is nuts. And young women today are, are certainly not going back to that, although we still don't have equal pay, which is pretty shocking. But the fact is we're moving forward. Let me tell you a story. Okay, we have um, less than two minutes before the news break. So I just well, wanted to give you I that. Can I go that fast? Okay, I'll shorten the story. A story I did on women in Afghanistan called Young Women for Change, I found half of their members were young men. Same thing in Cairo. When I went to do a story on the women of the Arab Spring, I went to the young women's, um, it's called Nazareth Center for Feminist Studies, half were young men. I said, what are you doing with the young men in this organization? And both the girls in Cairo and the ones in Kabul said the same thing. They said, we will never get to the finish line unless we walk together. Wise words. I like that. That's that's a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> you know, you talked about feminism being the women's, um, uh, you know, maybe not the right word or whatever. When I was a little girl, my mom and I were in gimbals, and mom wanted to get a credit card under Barbara Stewart, Mrs. Barbara Stewart. And they would not give her one unless it was Mrs. Edward Stewart. And my father had to be there and sign to allow it. And I remember the look on my mother's face and making a choice at that point in my life that I would never allow that to happen. Now, I'm divorced twice. I changed my name twice. And all of a sudden it hits me. (laughs) Wait a minute. I don't need to do that. Why am I doing that? If I ever get married again, you know, it's a different way of looking at it. And I want to talk about that when we come back from the break because you have such amazing stories in your book, Uprising. So we are here with Sally Armstrong, author of Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. And we're talking about women and what's going on in the world today. And I love that. And everybody, I want you to think about How are you having your own uprising? We'll be right back after the news break. And don't forget to check out the podcast on iTunes. It's all about the questions. So what are you asking? Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Sally, you had this quote. You said, one of the first casualties of war is the truth. And I know that that doesn't just apply to war, right? I mean, one of the, we were talking on the break and I mentioned to you that I lost my confidence this last year after the divorce and a whole bunch of other things that happened. And what I learned about myself is one of my first casualties of what was going on for me was the truth. I had made up this other perception of what was really going on for me, and I allowed it to become truth. I let the stinking thinking, the negative thoughts stick in. So I couldn't really move forward the way that I would like to move forward. There were moments, but not enough of them. With some of the things that you say you you get involved with, how do you keep this positive outlook that you have. I mean, you're in places that are pretty horrific, seeing things that are pretty horrific, making a massive difference by telling these stories and showing the world 
what's going on with it. How do you manage to keep your thinking so positive? Well, you know, um, it is a good question, and I must say uh, these stories are, they're very scarring, some of these stories. And and I leave those places, and, and those women, they stay on the back of my eyelids. They, I think about them. I wonder how they're managing. But, Laura, I get to bring a very hot light to their situation. I, I am like a messenger. I write my story, and my readers go into action. They call the UN. They call politicians. They raise the roof. I remember the very first time I did the women of Afghanistan. It was just after the Taliban took over. And I mean, can you imagine what a shock that was? It was 1996 in the fall when the Taliban took over. And I didn't get there till March because it was so hard to get into the country. I finally went in illegally. But, you know, to, to meet women who, who they had to paint their windows black so no one could see them. Their girls couldn't go to school. The women couldn't go to work. Where were you going to get money to buy groceries? They had to wear little wedge shoes because the Taliban didn't like the sound of the tap, tap, tap of a woman's heel. They couldn't get medical care. It was straight-out misogyny. But, you know, as I sat with those women the very first time, and as you know, I go back often. I've, I've been on that story now for, I think, 17 years. But the women said to me, we have no voice. They've taken our voice. You have to tell the women in the world. They have to speak for us. So that was my job as a journalist, was to tell their story, to get the facts, to let people know what exactly was going on uh, with these horrible, dumb Taliban people. And, uh, and I, I was really, uh, I felt very privileged I got to bring their truth out to my readers, and then my readers took action. So that's what sustains me. But, you know, I'll tell you a little story. One time, not the first time, um, it was before 9-11, I think it was January 2001, I was in Kandahar, and I was hiding with these women, because if they were ever seen talking to me, they'd be in terrible trouble. And as I was leaving, they were stuffing sweet breads and non-bread, or sweet cakes and non-bread into my pockets so that I would have something to eat on my journey out of a country that had basically put them in prison. I thought, my God, the humanity here. It's incredible, isn't it, how we reach out to each other. And I, I admired those women so much. So, And then again, with my job I, and with with the way we, we manage communications today, I can stay in touch with people. I can find out how things are going. And, uh, you know, uh, this another story. I, I'll, I'll go quicker this time. A, a family came to Canada right after uh, the Taliban took over. The Taliban had murdered the father, and the mother somehow escaped. And she had three daughters, and she got out of Afghanistan in, in horrendous ways, but she managed to get out. And she got to Canada because she had a brother who lived uh, in Canada. And I met them because I was speaking at a fundraiser all those years ago in the town that they had now taken up residence in. And I got to know them a little bit. And then they asked me to go back, and I did another fundraiser in that town. And then they joined a group. It's called Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. They do extraordinary things, getting the girls back to school in Afghanistan, etc. The point of my story is this. 
the youngest daughter in that family was 11 years old when I met her, frightened, didn't speak English, didn't know where the heck she'd landed. You know, you come out of another country, you think you're on the dark side of the moon when you come over here because, first of all, you're freezing and, and nothing works. And Anyway, she was 11. Well, she grew up. She went to university. She decided to go into politics. And three weeks ago, we had an election in this country, and she ran to be the member of parliament for her area. And, Laura, she won. And not only that, the new prime minister of Canada made her a minister in his cabinet. She's the minister in charge of democratic institutions. And I thought, isn't this the story that that we want? This is how we want things to turn out. They don't always turn out that way, but often they do. And this is the kind of thing I think that fuels me for the kind of work that I do. I had goosebumps all over me when you just told that story. And Shane, <laughs> my producer, story, gave the, the whole, you know, hands up, punch in the air, yes, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and that doesn't happen every day, that particular story. But I get how that would, would feed you. And, and yeah. the women putting the food in, in your pockets would feed you. Now, you were um, picked up by the Taliban at one point, correct? Yes, I was. What, what in was... fact, it was that trip. It was January 2001. About eight months before 9-11. Now, what what was that like? Well, it was horrible. You know, it was a very interesting time because people were already saying that uh, Mullah Omar was losing control of of the troops, that the Taliban were, were, there was dissension in the ranks, that how much longer could they last? And I was very interested in that. And then, <clears throat> well, they picked me up. And, I mean, I was the Taliban's worst nightmare. Can you imagine? They kept saying, you have no business writing about our women. You're not from here. You're not in our culture. You're not in our religion. You're a woman. <laughs> and I would say as politely as possible, um, what you're doing to the women here is not cultural. It's criminal. And, of course, I'll write about it. And, of course, now the whole world is writing about it. But when they picked me up, I think, looking back, I think they just wanted to teach me a lesson. I think they wanted to shut me up, which is I'm I'm not very educable. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> shut up easy. In any case, um, they took me to their foreign compound in the desert, and I I was pretty scared, and uh, and I wondered what would happen. <laughs> you know, I think your brain does funny things when you get yourself into a situation like that because at the time. I think I sort of turned into Nancy Drew. All I worried about was that they'd get my notes. Well, there was plenty more to worry about than my notebook. And here I was stuffing my notes into my clothes, and it was kind of crazy. But, uh, yes, it was a frightening time. But, you know, I get to come home. The people who, who live with people like that day in and day out, they don't get to leave. They have to suffer the consequences of these misogynist monsters. And uh, so I, I hesitate to put any of the agony on my back. It's it's those women I write about that uh, they're the ones that have to go through it all the time. Well, it, it sounds like those women helped you get through that. Uh, well, I wasn't seeing them when I was out. In the, no, but in the, the thoughts uh, of them and your mission really, yeah, I, really I, made a difference. I felt I had a very important story to tell. Now, I, I don't want to diminish the, the fact that I was scared to death when I was with the Taliban. 
but uh, but it, it passed, and they let me go, and and uh, and I got to leave. Now, in your book, you talk about the fact that, um, and I may get the percentage wrong because I I didn't for some reason I didn't highlight that particular thing, but it stuck out for me. And based on what we're just talking about, you said that I think it's seventy five percent of most of the mullahs and and stuff are illiterate. I don't think I put a percentage on it, Laura, but I can tell you that most are. You know, 85% of the people in Afghanistan were illiterate when all this began. I dare say that number has dropped because we've sent over a bazillion methods and means and teachers to, to alter that fact. But the, the, the important thing here is the Quran is written in Arabic. The people in Afghanistan don't speak Arabic, and most of them can't read anyway. So what happens is you have a bunch of self-appointed mullahs telling the people what to think. And, and what I found was most of them were making it up as they went along. And this is not acceptable. But you know, if you live in a primitive country, and that's the way it's been done forever, it's hard to make that change. You know, just this morning, I've been involved with a group of women in Afghanistan and elsewhere creating an open letter to the husbands and fathers and sons and brothers of, Af- of the women of Afghanistan to say, now is the hour to say no more. A woman was stoned to death in the province of Gore two weeks ago, and they filmed it, and they put it up on YouTube. Now, if you, if you have the wherewithal to film something and to put it up on YouTube, you have the wherewithal to listen to some facts. There is no place in either Sharia law or civil law that allows this hideous, primitive bloodletting. And it's time someone spoke up. And, and the letter, my part of the crafting of the letter was to say, if you disagree, you must speak up. And if you disagree and you don't speak up, you're as guilty as the guy who's doing it because your silence is seen as consent. It's time for these things to change. This is not about religion. This is about bloodletting. This is not about culture. This is about hatred. And it's time it stopped. Well, that's a there. Per- that's a perfect thought to go into <laughs> that's our speech for this morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect spot to go into our last commercial break. And I'd like to encourage all my listeners out there to ask yourself, where are you being silent in your life? Where can you stand up? We'll be right back after this commercial break with more from the amazing Sally Armstrong. Sally, a number of people are asking me, sending me emails and stuff like that. Um, How do they get more information about your book, about you, about how to help? Well, if my book is not in your local bookstore... It is. It is at the Vero Beach Book Center. (laughs) Um, If if you're not near there, you can get it at Amazon.com. That's easy enough. Um, if you want to be in touch with me, you can go to my webpage. It's um, www.sallyarmstrong.org, and uh, there's a contact there. And there's more of, of my work there. What did they post up the other day? I think I was in Nepal covering the earthquake in May, and they put up the video and the story from that. So that's how to get in touch with me. And what was your third question, how people can help? Yeah. That's what you said. Yeah. You know what, Laura? 
We all know there's loads of ways to help. There's great humanitarian organizations you can get involved with. Some of them are no good, but you can check out online what they're doing. Um, you, you can do tremendous work by, by helping push uh, these files forward. But you know, the, the most powerful tool any one of us has is our own voice. I have to admit, I've wrecked a few dinner parties in my day. <laughs> but, but we don't speak up often. You know, people sit down at a dinner party and they say, oh, those Afghans, they've been killing each other for 5,000 years. Let them keep it up, kill each other. Well, that's not okay with me. And I bet it's not okay with you. And I think if we speak up, we plant a seed that says, think about what you're saying. I mean, even today... With the, with the people saying things like, don't let those Syrians in my state or my province, because they may come to hurt us, think about that for a minute. Think about that 22-year-old woman with two little kids who, God forbid, is on the run because they tried to kill her, and now we're saying we, we don't want you. I, I think your voice is the most important tool you have, and I think all of us. doesn't mean you have to be rude. It doesn't mean you have to yell, but I think if we are thoughtful and we speak up and we look to our own core values, I think we find the answers we need. Now, I want to I want to take it a little more local for some for some people who may have a hard time, like you talked about, with these other conversations. Two weeks ago, I had Jackie Zayner. On the show. Oh, isn't she marvelous? Oh, she's absolutely <laughs> incredible. And she spoke this year at the Impact 100 Breakfast last week. Oh, she did. She did. And she was the executive producer of the new documentary called Hunting Ground. It talks about girls being raped on university campuses. We've all seen Rolling Stones magazine. You know, they had to retract their story about the gang raping of a woman in a fraternity. We've seen the videos of football players, NFL football players, beating their wives and their girlfriends in elevators and other places. That's a, it's a different conversation, yet in some ways it's a similar conversation, I think. Um, it's a very, very important conversation. And that documentary, The Hunting Ground, that Kirby Dick was the director, that is a brilliant piece of work. I, I dare say that's going to win a lot of awards because they have the, the gumption to say what needs to be said. His research is impeccable. The work they did, the way they, they tied this story together. You know, at, you and I, I, I can't say you and I, most people are under the impression that the raping on the campuses, which is really disgraceful, that it's done by all the frat boys or all the football players. And what this documentary teaches us is it's not all the frat play, uh, boys, all the football players. It's 10%. But they don't get caught. They don't, they don't, they don't have to, to be responsible. The universities prefer to look the other way because the universities don't want the stain of the sin of rape being attached to their school. So these men who are raping and re-raping and re-raping have impunity. That's what this documentary shows us. And, and this documentary puts tremendous pressure, including the use of Title IX, on the universities to take responsibility for what is going on on their campus. And I think, I think that documentary, especially if they decide to use a, a Title IX, 
is going to go some distance to changing the very ugly facts about the raping in universities. And also, when you when you look at the in the, in the documentary, I don't know if you've seen it, but the impunity of one guy. He, he's on at the very beginning. He's a big star football player at Florida State, and at the end of the university, at the end of the documentary, they tell you he is the number one draft pick for 2015 for the uh, NFL. That's frightening. That's it absolutely frightening. And yet, I think this. Doc, I I think it should be required watching. But you know, I the. Our evening news anchor interviewed uh, Kirby Dick for that documentary, and I went to see it the very next day. But, Laura, I dare say there were not a dozen people in the theater, and I thought it's going to close, so they're not going to keep it open if no one's going to see it. And that's a problem. We tend to look the other way when we see things that, that upset us or things we feel powerless to stop. We're not powerless. We can stop anything we want. And, and so I'm, I'm so thrilled that Jackie um, has been uh, sharing that with your audience because it's good for her for getting involved with it and great for Kirby Dick for the work he did. Apparently some colleges are already suing the, uh, the filmmakers over that film coming out oh is that right oh yeah oh my gosh i wish i was a reporter covering that story well i think you should (laughs) i mean they they but this they're so brave they they interview college presidents and they show they have one police officer in the documentary that that comes to a girl who's been raped and says i've been told not to do anything about this but i've changed my mind now with a couple of years later he said you come with me we're opening this up so um, I can see why they'd be upset, but it's time. You know, the funders have to understand that the pride of a university should be based on truth and on goodness, not on hiding rape. We're about to end the show, and I can't believe it's over already. Um, <laughs> you know, as you and I say, we just I just love talking to you. I get new insights. And for everybody that's listening, I hope today... If nothing else, we've created a new conversation in your head for you. Sally, last thoughts like that you'd like to leave my audience with, my listeners, last questions you'd like them to be asking themselves. Just a last thought in the last couple of minutes. Well, you know, I think often we feel, uh, we feel overwhelmed by the things that are going on around us. We feel we have to kind of cover our heads and, and hide. And, it, and it's not the way to go forward, especially Americans. You, you have the tools, you have the history, uh, you have the means to make a difference. And I think if, if all of us, just like the people in Paris today are standing together saying, you can't scare us, well, you can't scare Americans either, and you can't scare Canadians either. And I think, I think when we look out for each other, we do better. We know very well that a sense of community is way more powerful than a sense of control. So that would be my thought, to, to look around, pick up your head. We're good people, and, and we can manage. In your book, you talked about a number of situations where women gathered in villages and stood together, and because of it, they made change around foot binding, around female genital mutilation, um, about 
uh, young children being married off. Um, I, I, we have an opportunity here. We do. And you know what? That's going on all over the world today. And it's because of education. Women are coming together and saying, never again, not my daughter. And, and you know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. But it took a lot of courage to make the changes here that we needed to make as well for the safety and the, and the fairness and the justice around women. And we're not at the finish line either. But at least we've gotten off the starting line. We know what to do, and we have the in- infrastructure to help us get it done. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I am very grateful, and I'm so glad that you have returned from your, your last trip safe, and I know you're heading out <laughs> again soon. For, yeah. you well, know, Laura, it's article. wonderful to talk to you. I love your spirit. I love the way you go forward. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And everybody, to find out more about Sally Armstrong, go to sallyarmstrong.org. You can watch a number of incredible videos and just reach out to her. Uh, find some groups in your local area. Just stand together as women and, and men with the women to make a change and make a stand for what you believe in. And I, I love this, Sally. You said the most powerful tool we all have is our voice. I use this radio show to share my voice with you and the voice of all these other amazing spe- people. So speak up, plant a seed, get the book that Sally has written, Uprising, and remember the right question truly can change your life. So don't be afraid to ask that tough question. Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.